I recognize that not everybody uh, in Life Fellowship is a sports fan, uh, so if you could just bear with me for a moment. For those of you who are not, you probably should know that in the National Football League, in the NFL draft, players who get drafted somewhere between the sixth and seventh rounds of the NFL draft have somewhere between a 30 to 35% chance of making an NFL team. Uh, not very high, not very good. So when the New England Patriots arrived at pick number 199 in the 2000 NFL draft in the sixth round, they drafted a player with this scouting report. Let me read to you. Poor build, skinny, lacks great physical stature and strength, lacks mobility and ability to avoid the rush, lacks a really strong arm, can't drive the ball downfield, does not throw a really tight spiral. System-type player who can get exposed if forced to ad-lib gets knocked down easily. Suffice to say, the risk was low in drafting this player, and so were the expectations. And I'm talking about, of course, Tom Brady, a seven-time Super Bowl NFL champion that some believe is the greatest quarterback to ever play the position. Now, on the way in, my wife reminded me that it's Rich's birthday. I had no idea this was not for you in that regard. I am going somewhere with this, as we're going to see, but happy birthday. Rich is from Boston, and he's a big Patriots fan. So is his wife, Debbie. So here we go. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Jews at this time would have resonated very well with where Peter was going with this, because when the temple was being built in the first century, the cornerstone that had been sent from the quarry was rejected by the builders as not being the right one. So when it came time to set the cornerstone, which is the most important stone in the building, the builders sent word to the quarry to send the cornerstone. But they were informed that we already did. You have it. And to their surprise, that cornerstone was right there in their presence sitting and weeds. Somehow, it took 199 picks to draft, arguably, the greatest quarterback of all time. He was sitting right there. He was right there in round one. He was right there in round two. He was right there in round three. He was right there all along. And team after team, pick after pick, said, not the guy. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no argument. He is the greatest of all time. Absolutely. But he was rejected by his people, the Jews, and they are still looking for the chief cornerstone. 
In verse 6, Peter was quoting from Isaiah 28, 16, and we know that Jesus Christ is a living stone. We looked at this. He is the chief cornerstone. He is God's elect. He is precious. And to those who believe on him, they are not to be confounded. That is, they are not to be ashamed. They are not to be disgraced because of their love and their devotion to him. But rejection can induce shame, correct? When you are being rejected and persecuted for your devotion to Christ, that can provoke shame, right? When you're being ridiculed in the workplace, when your family looks at you and says, man, you are a geek, you are an idiot. Why are you so zealous? Do you really believe that book, that fairy tale that was written so many years ago? That can provoke shame. Uh, Christians at this time were not only being persecuted, they were being ridiculed and mocked. They were. They were labeled as cannibals because they partook of the Lord's Supper. Uh, They were looked at as geeks because of their conviction and their devotion for purity. This is one of the reasons that Peter commanded them to be holy, and nothing has changed. Because listen, if you are a biblicist today, meaning that you hold wholeheartedly to this book, you believe every word, you love it, you live it, this book is everything to you, then you too are going to be rejected and mocked by your family, by coworkers, by neighbors, for sure. Verse 7, unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed." Now, we saw this word disallowed a few weeks ago in verse 4, and we just simply pointed out that it just refers to the fact that Israel did not allow him to be their Messiah. They did not accept him as the chief cornerstone at his first coming. Had they done so, he would have completed them. Because Colossians 2.10 tells us that we are what in Christ? Complete. Of course, my throat is having a moment. Thank you. (laughs) Excuse me. It is itching like crazy. Instead, he was a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Both stumbled at his word, which led to disobedience. Listen very carefully. When Christ became, or when he becomes, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, people are going to stumble at his word, and they are going to be disobedient, Jew or Gentile, regardless of the era. But he is not Israel's chief cornerstone yet, but he is for the church because Ephesians 2.20, which we looked at, tells us that he is, in fact, the head of the corner of the church. And at his second coming, he is going to fulfill the prophecy that we referenced in Isaiah 28.16 of being the precious cornerstone that God will lay in Zion. 
But in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, he was given an image of a very large statue. Many of you are familiar with this. And that statue represented a series of kingdoms that decreased in power. Now, when you consider, this is very, very critical, when you consider what God revealed to Daniel, it absolutely, excuse me, we're going to get through this, I promise. It absolutely revealed uh, or manifested one of the things that separates the Bible as the word of God, fulfilled prophecy. Because history confirms that Power did, in fact, transition from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks and to the Romans, just as Daniel outlined. But here's the issue. And this is one of the things that, again, it, it, it puts the Bible on a completely different platform. Because at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the kingdom of Persia was not even in existence. So how could Daniel have written about it with such precision. How could he have known? I mean, the Roman Empire lived for centuries, thank you very much, for centuries after Christ. And here's Daniel writing about all of this. Uh, This book is unlike any other. But in your notes, Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, thou sawest too that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, We have more text here than we have time, but the stone cut without hands obviously is the Lord Jesus Christ. The feet that were of iron and clay are clearly connected to the legs of iron, which was Rome. Feet, as we know, have ten toes, and this also has in view the confederacy of the ten nations that will be led by the Antichrist in the tribulation. But the stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, that was rejected will smite the kingdoms of this world. And while they have decreased in power, the stone will become a great mountain and fill the earth. As Isaiah 9, 7 tells us that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He's not decreasing, (laughs) only increasing. Now that we've seen, or from what we've seen so far, primarily concerns Israel and the unbeliever, what we see beginning in verse 9 through the rest of the chapter concerns us, believers in this dispensation right now, and that is evident by what we read in verse 9, but ye talking to us now. Believers, talking to us. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, verse 9 is very, very Jewish. 
Israel was a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation and a peculiar people. And according to verse 10, those things are true of us spiritually. Not that we have replaced Israel, but from a spiritual perspective, those same things are true of us. Look at verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So essentially what Peter was doing in this verse was he was expounding on what we covered in verse 5. If you were here, you'll remember that. If not, get the audio. But we see something in verse 9. That helps us to understand what these realities ought to mean to us practically today. Number one, we are to be a peculiar people. We are to be a peculiar people. Uh, Peculiar has to do with how God acquired or purchased us. It was unique. And according to chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, if you remember, God did not purchase us or acquire us by silver and gold. It wasn't money. It wasn't that type of a transaction. No, the Bible tells us in that section that it was with the precious blood of Christ. That's how we were acquired. That's how we were purchased. Brothers and sisters, please, we... We, we, we reach a point now that it's very critical that you get this next point. It's very critical that I get this next point. You and I cannot afford to get this as it relates to our redemption, as it pertains to how we were acquired. Please, I beg you, our redemption was unusual, and listen, and so should our life be. Our redemption was unusual. (laughs) It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a typical financial transaction. We're talking about the precious blood of Christ, which was the very blood of God that purchased us. That is peculiar. That is unique. Listen, it has to grieve God When his people who were unusually redeemed live such a usual life, it has to grieve him. In other words, they live just like those who have not been redeemed. It's as if the precious blood of Christ was wasted. That's egregious. Because we were not redeemed for a usual life. Listen, all of us can live a usual or common life without the blood of Christ. We don't need the blood of Christ. We don't need the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. We don't need the inspired, preserved word of God to be usual. We can do that quite well on our own. We were not redeemed for that. The precious blood of Christ was not spilled for that. Consider Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, 
And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself. Listen carefully. Above all the nations that are upon the earth. So when God said, above all the nations that are upon the earth, he was making it clear that Israel was not to be like the nations on the earth. They were to be different. They were to be peculiar. They were to be unusual. Please, the travesty today, please, please, is that many believers are ashamed to be godly, but unashamed to be worldly. That's the travesty. They are ashamed to be Christ-like. They are ashamed of the gospel. They are ashamed to, to, to be a light in the midst of darkness. But they are unashamed to be worldly. This is how a believer can cuss in the workplace but not use their mouth to preach the gospel. They will grieve the Spirit of God. They will wreck their testimony by corrupt communication, and they will do that publicly without shame, no blushing. Pardon the illustration here, but if you put a gun to their head, they wouldn't share the gospel in the workplace. But they'll be at the water cooler and they'll talk the filth and the trash and the garbage that comes out of people's mouths. But oh man, <laughs> to invite someone to a Christmas cafe or to invite them to lunch so they can talk to them about Christ. <laughs> oh, I would never do that. When speaking of the sinful condition of Judah and the southern kingdom, from the people to the prophets to the priests, listen to what God said about all that in Jeremiah 6 and verse 15. <clears throat> Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay. They were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. And at the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. They were sinning boldly before God. Without shame and without blushing. To sin boldly without being ashamed or blushing means that our conscience is seared and our hearts have become as hard as a stone. It means that you can sin egregiously without blinking. God said it's, it's an abomination. They were doing abominable things 
No shame, no blush, just, it's just who I am, it's just how I live. Can I tell you one of the things that I think ought to be one of the most terrifying places to be spiritually? is to be to the place in your life where you have quenched the Spirit so regularly and you have grieved Him so often that you have no sensitivity to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have shut Him off like a switch where you can cross lines, grieve God. I mean, you are doing things and it doesn't bother you. The fact that you are just completely disregarding God's word in your life, you are living in outright disobedience, and you can lay your head down at night and sleep like a baby, that's a terrifying place to be. Well, the Holy Spirit, I mean, he, he, he can't even speak to you anymore. Like a usual person, you have no fear of God, and you will think, say, and do anything, essentially daring him to respond. Many years ago, I was so excited to land a job with a man that I had immense respect for spiritually. He was someone that I looked up to, I admired. He's one of those guys that, you know, when you're a babe in Christ, you, you have these, especially at the Kansas City Baptist Temple, you were surrounded by some really good men. I mean, men that you said, Lord, maybe someday when I grow up, I could be maybe a fourth of that. He was one of those guys. But as time went on, it became very evident to me that the guy I knew at church was not the same guy in the office. And at one point, a coworker who knew that me and this man went to the same church, he let me know in passing that you guys are different Christians. His testimony at church was unusual, but in the workplace it was very usual. I grieved that. I was embarrassed for him and his family. Let me ask you a question. What's your testimony? Are you usual or unusual? Verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what we look at here has everything to do with your testimony, one way or the other whether it is usual or unusual. Because not only are we to be 
a peculiar people, but we must be a pure people. We must be a pure people. If your testimony is peculiar in the biblical sense, then purity will be a staple in your life as well. But Peter reinforces the importance of being peculiar in verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Uh, Strangers, we would associate that with Gentiles and pilgrims, we would associate that with Jews. Again, Peter was writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers. The point here is, though, is as believers, this world is not our home. We are strangers and pilgrims. And that's it. That that absolutely gels with us being peculiar. Why are we peculiar? Because this world is not our home. Never forget, uh, we were on Long Island. We were having having lunch on Long Beach, which I miss very much. We were having lunch on Long Beach, and the waitress comes, and and she's uh, looking to take our order. And I order, and then Lori begins to order. She had some questions about the menu, and this girl was a New Yorker. She goes, I'm sorry, where are you from? Right? Lori's accent, like she, Lori has this Midwest Kansas accent, right? It, this, to, to this woman, Lori was an alien. It, it was obvious to her that Lori was peculiar. How about that? Right? That's us. We're, we're pilgrims and strangers. It ought to be obvious to the world that this is not our home. This is We are not citizens genuinely of this place. We're citizens of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 tells us that. But as it relates to verses 11 and 12, there are two major areas for discussion for us here in the time that we have left, which is not very much. Number one, in the area of lust, we are to abstain from fleshly lust. Roman culture was very lustful which is one of the reasons that they were mocking these believers because of how they were living there. I mean, it was a cesspool of, of sensual vileness and perversion. And so is our culture today, is it not? Amen. Like, I'll never probably get to the extent where I don't have a TV. But let me tell you something, having children now, I mean, and maybe I'm going to date myself here, but listen, there are commercials now that had they aired 30 years ago, there would have been outrage. Pure outrage. God help my 17-year-old son. Help me. (laughs) Our culture, listen, is obsessed. Obsessed with fornication. Obsessed with adultery. Obsessed with promiscuity. Obsessed with pornography. Obsessed with homosexuality. Obsessed. It has an insatiable appetite for these things. Pedophilia. I mean, our culture is saturated with this. Listen, people and even believers don't blush anymore. Is that right? I mean, the things that people can do and express publicly without blushing is incredible. Not in a good sense. 
But to the believer, we are to abstain from these things. This means that, listen, there is no room, there is no space in your life or mine for any of these things. The welcome mat is not out. The windows and the doors of our lives are locked, sealed. No way, you cannot enter. Doors and windows are points of controlled access. You've got to control what gets in, what is allowed in. You've got to control that. You've got to have lines. You've got to have standards. You've got to know what can't come in. As Paul would say, they are to be mortified. Not managed. Now, Peter made a statement in verse 11 that, listen, <laughs> when I say critical, I wish I could find a stronger word. I don't, it, if one comes to mind, yell it out. Critical, vital, urgent. I'm going through my synonyms here. Life or death. <laughs> How about that? But he makes a statement in verse 11 that is so very critical when it comes to dealing with lust. Look at it. Which war against the soul? War. Brothers and sisters, lust is an issue of spiritual warfare. It's an issue of spiritual warfare. Is the flesh weak? Yes, very. And we all have predispositions towards lustful things. I don't care who you are or how fine you may present yourself this morning. We all have lustful predispositions. All of us do. But at its core... This is what the issue of lust always comes down to. Every day, every time, every scenario. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would that word lusteth in verse 17 you know what it means to set the heart upon do you know what the heart of your flesh is set upon let me help you the heart of your flesh is set upon Everything and anything that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. The things that Peter commanded us to abstain from, your flesh says, that's what my heart is set upon. That's what I want. 
and I'm going to war with you, and I'm going to fight with you every second of every day for you to feed me. And as your flesh would have it, you know what your flesh will do? Your flesh will tell you, as it tries to tell me, you know what? You owe me this. Feed me or else. I am demanding. I'm demanding that you give me some drunkenness. I'm demanding that you give me some idolatry. I demand that you give me some pornography. I demand that you give me some substances. I demand it. I can't live without those things. This is the lie. Because if I understand Romans chapter 8, verse 12, are we debtors to the flesh? Are we? No. No. Guess what I owe my flesh? Nothing. I remember when I paid off my college student loans. That was a fine day. You know what that meant? They have no power over me. If they want to send me a letter, they can send it. Go ahead. I'll get to it when I get to it. Why? Because I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you one red cent. Where did that come from anyway? I've never seen a red cent. They're brown, right? One red cent. You get my point. So when your flesh starts demanding that you give me this and you give me that and I can't live without this and, and, and give me these fleshly lusts, plural. You go to Romans eight twelve and you go, well, based on what this says, you're lying. I don't owe you anything. Brothers and sisters, I'm made of the same stuff you're made of. My flesh is as weak as yours. But here's what God has taught me and continues to teach me every single day when it comes to this issue of lust that is alive and well in all of our lives. It is this simple. It is this simple every day, every time, every situation. Listen, the only, and I do mean only, the only way to abstain from fleshly lust is to walk in the Spirit. That's it. That's it. That is the only way. You can try this, and you can try that. At best, all you're going to do is put a Band-Aid on it. The only way to abstain from fleshly lusts is to walk in the spirits of God, which means you are walking with God in and through his word. That's it. That's it. It is a war. It's a war. And I'm going to tell you, wars are won or lost based on truth. At least for the believer in the warfare that we're engaged in. Every day it comes down to what does the Bible say? And am I going to embrace that in my head and in my heart, which means it will come out of my life. But the reason that so many are losing this war in the area of lust is because when the dust clears, 
you're really not walking with God in and through his word daily, which means you've got no shot when your flesh begins to throw a tantrum for you to feed it what it is begging for in this area. You know what you're like? You're like the parent in the checkout line when the kid throws a fit and you go, you know what, listen, just go ahead and get the Snickers so they'll just calm down. That's what your flesh is like. Like, okay, 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 stop, okay, okay, just, just hang on, hang on, hang on. Here you go. <laughs> you, you happy now? You good? The next area, life. Verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Time is running, but conversation, the word just simply means behavior. So again, Peter was writing to Jews and Gentile believers, and Gentiles used here would have been reflective of unbelievers in general. But we encounter a critical takeaway here, and I do mean critical. Listen, the proper response to persecution from the world, listen, is an honest life. An honest life. An honest life is a blameless life. It absolutely is. You know, I, I agree with this. this. It's been said before that uh, people can challenge, if not deny, the existence of God. They can challenge um, the validity of Scripture. But here's something they can't challenge or deny. You know what that is? An honest life. A godly life. Can't argue with that. <laughs> uh, Romans twelve seventeen recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If your testimony is peculiar, those who hate you will not be able to deny the good works they see in your life. They won't be able to deny your honest life. Your honest. Testimony, But this is a problem for some believers. I shared that illustration with you earlier for this reason, because for some believers, they have wrecked their testimony in the workplace, in their families, uh, in their classrooms. They have destroyed their testimony because their life is dishonest. Listen, I get it. Unbelievers, they might have, and they are spiritually blind, but listen, they do have some sight. And they can sniff, and they can perceive hypocrisy, especially when they see it repeated over and over and over again. There have been times where I have been embarrassed by people in the workplace who publicly identified as a Christian. I'm like, please, stop. Your testimony is a train wreck. The reality is, and I think this is the heart of this day of visitation that Peter is getting at, but the reality is this, an honest life can be used to win people to Christ. Do they have questions about the existence of God? Yes. 
Do they have questions about the validity of Scripture? Yes. But I tell you what, day in and day out, as they watch this believer come to work on time and work hard and not murmur and not complain and be difficult and not be dishonest and unethical, when they watch them come and they they talk about their wife or they talk about their husband in a very nice way. They're very kind about their family and and they respect people and, and this is consistent. They just might want to hear what you have to say because you are peculiar and you are pure. Lord, thank you for what you have given us here in this portion of First Peter. I do pray that we would hide it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.